This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome, one and all, to this special episode of The Takeout. You know, we're trying to do as many of these as possible to be as responsive to as many different subjects arise around COVID-19. There are so many subjects. One of them, of course, is the ongoing conversation about the state of the U.S. economy, how it's been closed down because of stay-at-home orders, and how it can begin to move forward as it reopens. And one of the things that is continuously topical, not only across the country, but certainly here in Washington, is the means by which the federal government has tried to keep small businesses alive through something called the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, Jim Nussel is the uh, president and CEO of the Credit Union National Association. I've known Jim for many years. It's been a long time since we've talked, but I covered him when he was in Congress. I covered him when he was the director of the Office of Management and Budget earlier in his career. Jim, it's good to talk to you. How are you? Great to be with you again. I'm doing I'm doing as well as can be expected. I think my wife might have a different viewpoint on all that, though. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll leave spousal appraisals aside uh, during the COVID-19 trauma. Of course. Um, but uh, let me ask you this, just as a point of clarification for people who may not understand the difference, what's the difference between a bank and a credit union? Well, you know, from the outside looking in, banks and credit unions are almost identical. We have branches, we have checking accounts, we have savings accounts, we do loans, we have credit cards, debit cards, everything on the outside looks very similar. On the inside is where you see the difference because credit unions are not-for-profit, cooperatively owned uh, financial institutions, which different than a bank, a bank has shareholders who own the business for profit. A cooperative is owned by all of its member consumers uh, that do business at the credit union, and you can run for its board and and be a volunteer on its board, etc. So it's a cooperative financial institution that you own as being a member of a credit union. Are they by definition intensely local? They are because, of course, you can't go any further than the members themselves. Shareholders can be all over the country, and many, many, of course, are. But they are intensely local as a result of that. And typically, we're founded around common bonds of 
you know, all of the teachers in, a, in an area or in a state, or maybe all of the government workers, or maybe uh, it was a business that started it, or a local community. So most of them are very intensely local as a result and are motivated to help the people, of course, that they serve because they're owned by those people. This is apropos of nothing, but the first bank account or the first account I had in Washington, D.C. was at the Wright-Patman House Federal Credit Union. Well, you and I are fellow credit union members in this and had the exact same experience, uh, Major, and probably almost at the exact same time, too, if my memory serves. <laughs> just about. Just about. Uh, for the purposes of this interview, we're going to talk about a lot of things dealing with the Paytech Protection Program, but I also want to get Jim's appraisal of a couple other things because he was chairman, if I recall, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong here, of the House Budget Committee after 9-11. So you have, if I have this right, some experience in looking at the questions of what the federal government has, how it allocates it after a particularly traumatic outside event. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that as well. Do I have that right? Yeah, I was chair after 9-11 and I was OMB director during the Great Recession. So I'm, I'm, I'm like Pigpen. The disaster may be following me is uh, is maybe the problem. I don't know. Well, you're certainly there. I don't know if it follows you, but you have perspective that will be valuable for this conversation. But let's start with the Paycheck Protection Program. Just a couple of basic statistics for the audience. Original tranche, that's a kind of a DC word, but the original allocation, $349 billion through the Small Business Administration with a financing mechanism via the Treasury Department. That amount of money ran out, as you have probably well heard, Another $310 billion was just approved by Congress, signed by President Trump. And of that new second $310 billion, that second tranche, again, that D.C. word, if I have this right, Jim, $60 billion was specifically set aside for small, medium-sized banks and credit unions. So that's just sort of the overall statistical lay of the land. From your perspective and from the perspective of your members, that first portion of paycheck protection money, $349 billion. Did it get to credit unions? I've read a lot of stories that they had a very hard time elbowing their way ahead of banks, and there was a big delay in getting the processing rules and regulations for their members to access this loan program. Yeah, I think there's two parts to that answer, Major. One is that did it get to smaller uh, financial institutions at all? Uh, not just credit unions, but also small community banks. And I think there's been uh, there's been some frustration and some concern as to whether or not some of the small town community banks and credit unions have been able to access uh, their quote unquote fair share of the distribution to help small businesses, which is really the point. Uh, in all of that. And I think, too, part of it was, uh, it are, you know, credit unions are typically uh, a consumer financial institution, meaning, you know, we don't serve that many small businesses, but we do serve uh, a, a small portion. So credit unions didn't have a large experience with the SBA coming into this. And so there were both those kind of aspects that I think credit unions were dealing with as we tried to help the government get these uh, funds into the hands of, of people who needed their paychecks protected. And I've read stories uh, about credit unions across the country where I won't say the I don't want to overhype this. The frustration was boiling over, but the frustration was clearly evident, either not being able to access it, getting their members the money or getting the rules or just being elbowed out by bigger banks. 
Yeah, and on the one hand, you know, it's true with any government program. And remember, SBA, you just you just cited these numbers. Let's put them in the macro bucket. Six hundred and fifty nine billion dollars was trying to go through a a pipeline that typically only handles twenty five billion. So six fifty nine versus a pipeline that handles twenty five, and that's twenty five over a year versus in this instance the first. First tranche came through in 12 days, and they just kicked off the second tranche this morning, as you said. So I think we've got to be a little bit patient, and so I think we're all willing to do that. But just as an example today, you may have heard the news that the system crashed right away at 1030 uh, when it opened up for business, when the window opened up for new PPP loans this morning. And it's that kind of frustration that makes this very difficult to both support and get the money out uh, that the program is intended to, to, uh, to achieve. I know you had stressed patience, but is that really acceptable, Jim, that the, 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 the system crashed? I mean, I know it's a lot of money and I know there's a lot of demand, but uh, shouldn't that functionality have been, if not guaranteed, more reliable? It should have been, and it should have been tested during the during the period of time from the first 12 days, which was about two weeks ago, until today when they knew that both they were going to get more resources and there was going to be a long line, a long queue of applications uh, that were going to need to, you know, to get processed immediately. So that functionality needed to be there. And I, all I'm saying when I talk about patience is that we're in unprecedented times, I think, all of us are willing to roll with some punches, but a few of these punches have been to the gut, and that makes it very difficult uh, to help the people that, that obviously we all intend to try and help through this program. And Jim, we've talked to people who are trying to keep their businesses alive at this time, and they express to us that days mean everything. And days of delays at this point for them could mean the difference between holding on and collapsing. You're exactly right. I mean, I've seen I've seen situations. I had a couple just today where I heard about a credit union uh, that was. Uh, I mean, our typical loan is about sixty four thousand uh, dollars versus some of the some of the national average. I think is which is over three hundred thousand dollars. So we're talking about very small loans that we're doing with credit unions. But these are the mom and pop stores that you see driving through Main Street. Of just about any town, and they're one, two, five employees. But boy, those jobs are important in in the towns that we're talking about, and they will make the difference in many instances uh, for the business to stay open, or for those people to be able to put food on the table uh, during these coming weeks that uh, there's going to be this kind of economic uncertainty. So it's safe to assume that many members of credit unions did not receive PPP loans during the first 12 days. And with the system crashing on the first day of its second entrance into this market, each and every day looms larger and ever more critical. So we were just told that the system is back up. I mean, this is a live fire exercise, as you can imagine. So it crashed this morning, 1030 it's, we're told that this afternoon it's back up and processing. The jury is still out, but we're going to keep at this. I mean, credit unions feel like we're the kind of the, the financial first responders because this is often 
one of the first places a person goes in, in, in any kind of disaster, natural disaster, economic disaster, they check their account or they try and figure out how they're going to make their business or pay their bills. And uh, so we're on the front line of that big and small, mostly small, and we want to make sure that the program works. So we're going to stick with it even when it crashes, but it is frustrating and it's got to keep going, chugging along if we're going to get these folks through the, uh, through the crisis that they're finding themselves in now. I'd like to get your point of view on the following assessment, which I've heard from others. Uh, Two significant structural flaws in the way the Paycheck Protection Program was originally put together. One, first come, first serve. Two, existing relationships with banks. Are those flaws or just what you had to do to make it work initially? It's a fair question, and there's always Monday morning quarterbacking that you can do. And and so I, I think those are two important first things to consider, no question. But there had to have been a third and a fourth consideration in order to be able to get in line. It couldn't just be uh, that those that were sophisticated enough to be able to make the application, uh, you know, are the only ones that get serviced or those that have uh, a, uh, an, an existing relationship with a, a bank or credit union because many people are able to make these uh, small businesses go without any kind of loan or loan servicing through an institution. They're able to do it just kind of at their kitchen table. Uh, they built it that way, and they're very frugal about the way their business operates. So both of those, I think, were fallacies to be the only way that you could enter the system. And there is an assumption out there, Jim, that Shake Shack, Ruth's Chris, Los Angeles Lakers, just to name three, all of whom received money through the Paycheck Protection Program and are now publicly announcing giving it back, that they shouldn't have even been involved in the first place. Now, that's just an assumption that's out there. If you meet the criteria and you apply, you're fairly able to access this money. Now, you may have a public relations problem on your hand, but that doesn't mean you've broken any rules or done anything necessarily wrong. What's your perspective on that? Since your members are not the Los Angeles Lakers, Ruth, Chris, or Shake Shack. Well, and you're right. I mean, it's it's hard to reflect on any of those. Those those tend to be the ones that stick out like sore thumbs because we all we all know that they're obviously big or something must not be right about that. But clearly, they made it through the system in, in some way, shape, or form. So, I think what we what what is more concerning are the ones that still have no answer, that have still not gone through the system, that are waiting for a system that has crashed or waiting for money that wasn't appropriated to start with. I think that's more frustrating to me than, than hearing the, the instances, you know, like a Shake Shack or something like that. I just want to make sure that, and I think our credit unions that serve them are, are so interested in making sure that these small, small businesses that are really the lifeblood out there, and they're the beginning of big businesses. Shake Shack started as a, as a one-store operation, and that's true for everybody. So we want to make sure that they're surviving and most importantly, the people that that are working for them and that we're serving through this program. So let's go over the figures one more time, ladies and gentlemen. Originally, $349 billion set aside for the Small Business Administration through lending authority from the Treasury Department for paycheck protection. Now another $310 billion. So that as Jim Nussel, who is the president and CEO of the Credit Union National Association indicates is $659 billion, a vast amount of money. Yet someone who I know you know, Jim, Glenn Hubbard, 
uh, an economist, uh, an advisor to President Bush, said even before the ink was dry and President Trump's signature was on that first $349 billion, that upwards of $900 billion would be needed to meet the needs of small businesses around the country. If I have my statistics right, about 1.6 million, 1.6 million loans have been approved through this program, but there are more than 30 million small to medium-sized companies in the entire U.S. economy. Is this second amount, $310 billion, going to be enough? The short answer is no. The longer answer is as we both deal with the first and second tranche and the applications that go through this, uh, we've got to get better at ensuring that businesses are treated equally and fairly uh, in this process. It was a way to not draw on other uh, stresses within the system, whether it was unemployment insurance and to, to actually try and put the, the economy in a coma, if you will, if a, in, an, in an economically induced coma, so that we could revive the patient quickly in a month or two or three or four down the line. Well, in order to do that, you're going to have to be able to service the entire lot of small businesses uh, in the country. And I think it was clear that the intention was there, but the resources were not. Do you think Glenn's right? $900 billion to maybe a trillion dollars is what's ultimately going to be necessary? I think ultimately his math is probably closer than the ones I've seen uh, politically come through the Congress thus far. And, and uh, Glenn's usually spot on when it comes to these uh, kind of predictions and assessments. So I don't want to spend this entire conversation uh, kicking this program in the teeth because I want to point out something that I bet you you're familiar with, Jim, because I read about it after the Great Recession. Because one of the things those who were significantly involved in crafting the Obama administration response to the Great Recession looked back on and wish they had done more of was precisely this, funding authority through the Small Business Administration. And they looked back on it and said, you know, that is a funding mechanism and a application process and a means by which we could have done more, more rapidly, and with better results. So I don't want to suggest that this is a program that isn't about learning from what didn't work the last time. We had a significant economic problem on our hands, though this one obviously has different origins. Your thoughts? No, and it's exactly the reason why the Small Business Administration was chosen to be the conduit for, uh, for, this, for this program, particularly if you wanted to get the incentives uh, correct and you wanted to keep people in employment, you wanted to be able to shutter the economy or put it in, a, in, a, in an induced coma for a period of time so that it could start right up. This, this made a lot of sense, but the only way it makes sense is if the processing happens smoothly and efficiently and fairly, and if there's enough resources in order to make that work. And I don't think that's a political equation. If in fact that's the intent and it's an economic equation, then that should have been the motivation and not politics and uh, just what seemed to be the right number from a congressional negotiation. So from your vantage point, Jim, you just ticked off four criteria, smoothly, fairly, efficiently, and sufficiently, meaning there's enough resources. Right. 50% there, 30% there, 80% there. Where are we? Uh, I would say we're probably 50% there. Uh, the program, when it works, works well. It's getting resources out 
to the right people. I think the Small Business Administration is motivated correctly, but again, the the processing has been has been lacking uh, to non-existent, and the resources are not going to be enough, most likely, to get the job done. So I would say probably 50, 50%, 60% there is, is all I'd give it. Based on your experience, both as budget chairman after 9-11 and OMB director, as the Great Recession was beginning to deepen and manifest itself, thoughts on the overall U.S. federal response to COVID-19 in terms of its scope, its breadth, its speed, its bipartisan nature? What's what's it getting right? What's it missing? Well, my, my observation from both 9-11 and from the Great Recession was that when we were in the room talking about responses, it was not a mathematics equation, meaning we didn't sit around and say, well, let's look at the bills, let's see how much this costs, and let's make sure we pay the contractors, and let's make sure we invent this program. It was more a question of what is it going to take to give confidence to our country, to our economy, to our people at a time of extreme crisis. And that was the amount that was chosen. Uh, The initial amount for New York, as an example, was a number pulled out of really thin air. It was not meant as a, this will cover the cost of building a new building or paying for medical expenses. It was a big number because we wanted to show a big commitment. And the same was true for the TARP program, as an example. So at times like this, uh, what the Treasury Secretary, the president and the Congress typically do, and I think it's the right thing, is to do whatever it takes to give confidence to the American people and to the economy that we've got this and that we're going to do whatever it takes to uh, to make sure we keep this. And I think heretofore, uh, you know, this has been a public health challenge first and foremost, and it has not been treated as well as it could have been up front that way. Now I think we finally are getting serious about that. Because in order for us to go back into the kind of economic juices flowing that we that we're hoping for, we've got to solve the public health crisis first. And I would say that would be my my biggest assessment or biggest advice to the people that are thinking about this. Uh, And you mentioned TARP just because I love to do this with our audience. Just remind them of acronyms that get thrown around in Washington with some ease. Troubled access, yeah. Troubled Troubled access access relief program, program, right. right. Which was, right. the, which was the federal bailout, essentially. And then the loans were repaid. Much of the Paycheck Protection money that is not devoted to salaries does have to be paid back, correct? Right. And it's a backstop. But that's what I say. I mean, nobody sat around and said, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do about the deficit, uh, either after 9-11 or after the Great Recession or even now? No one's, no one's talking about the debt or deficit because they know we're the last resort when it comes to the federal government. And we need to do whatever it takes because if we don't, people will lose confidence in our in our money, in our economy, in our future, and we cannot have that. So that's the reason the government steps in, and the amount has to be big enough, and the commitment uh, and the leadership has to be big enough. Has it been big enough so far? Challenge that you're facing at that moment. I would say it's. Getting there now, I don't think it was taken as seriously as it could have or should have to begin with, but it is now. And I think it needs to be treated, as I say, uh, as a public health crisis, first and foremost, uh, because in order for us to go back, in order for us to get the confidence 
in addition to putting the economy in a coma, in an, in a, in an economic-induced coma for a period of time, we're all going to need the confidence, whether it's through testing or a vaccine, in order to venture out again and do business, uh, to travel, uh, and to have the kind of economic activity that our country needs to get back on its feet. Does it feel to you that we're going too fast in that direction right now, trying to reopen too quick? You know, I'm not in the room to know all the different discussions that, that need to happen. I, I certainly pay it more attention, most likely, to my uh, to my governor and what's happening in my local community. And I think in in that instance, it seems to be uh, it seems to be going at a at a strong rate. But we're, I mean. We're losing patience, and that's a, that's a human nature more than it's a political or economic nature. We're, we're all impatient. We all want to get out. We want to, I mean, the spring is coming, and so people are starting to get frustrated about that, and we're also concerned about our jobs and our, and our economic activity. People want to get back to that, but we're going to have to be patient uh, if, if we want to make sure that this is a one-time event versus something that comes back possibly in the fall or next winter. And where are you speaking to us from, Jim? I am in Madison, Wisconsin today, where I have part of my operation for the Credit Union National Association. We're located both in Madison and in Washington, D.C. And you call home Washington? I call home Northern Virginia today. Northern Virginia, very good. Um, So this question of confidence and economic reemergence you you feel more comfortable when that is led by public health or coupled with? I think I think it has to be both. I mean, I'm not suggesting that public health is the only aspect, but I can tell you that when I speak to my employees, my just my small little group, my my band of, of folks that that count on me for leadership, I don't tell them I'm waiting for the president or the governor to say it's safe. I tell them that's my responsibility. I'm certainly listening to the governor and I'm listening to the president, I'm listening to the public health folks, but I'm not going to ask them to come back to work or to do something that that I wouldn't be willing to do myself and put in harm's way uh, until I'm convinced it's safe to to do that. And I so I think all of us, whether you're running your family, you're running a small business, you're running an operation, or you're running a country need to have that confidence from public health before we're going to make some of the next moves economically. Before I let you go, I want to get your appraisal as a political matter and as someone who is familiar, very familiar with conversations of the nature I'm about to describe, both from the executive branch point of view and a congressional point of view. The next place we're going to have a bit of friction, it seems to me, and there really hasn't been that much in the federal response to COVID-19, but I feel the friction coming is over the amount of money the federal government allots to states who have seen, because of this economically induced coma you've referred to many times, their state budget revenue projections collapsing. States clearly need some money, but the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has already drawn very sharp lines. There might be some, but not much, and certainly not revenues from the federal government that are going to deal with some of your deeper, more underlying, and if you will, pre-existing budget problems. Where do you come down on that? And from your expertise of looking at it from the executive branch and Congress. You know, Major, I, I appreciate the question, and I wish I had a good answer. I really don't have one. I, I would say I'm more concerned about how this is going to affect 
people longer term. The Paycheck Protection Program was meant to get us over a hump. That hump is going to take longer than the Paycheck Protection Program is intended to, to, uh, to be a stopgap for. Before this crisis, seven out of 10 people who were well employed were living paycheck to paycheck. That was before the crisis. We're now at somewhere between 20% unemployment and, and maybe higher, according to some. I'm more concerned not about the states. I'm, I'm concerned about how this is going to affect people coming in August, September, October, November, the rest of this year and next year. Uh, this Paycheck Protection Program, all of the programs so far have been to get us from here into the summer. Uh, it's going to last longer than that is my concern, and I think how it affects individuals is more acute and more challenging than how it's going to affect even some of the uh, municipal and state budgets. In other words, we're not going to have a V-shaped recovery, meaning a sharp decline and a sharp ascent, but something that's much more shallow and maybe takes a long, longer time to get on that upswing. I see much more of a U-shaped recovery and uh, how, how long we're in the U, how long we're at the bottom of that U uh, will be how, how quickly do we have the confidence for, from a public health standpoint to get back out there. And that difference is really going to affect families and individuals as they try and meet their challenges and pay their bills. Jim Nussel, President and CEO of the Credit Union National Association. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you, Major. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? 
Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.